Next, ReachMD presents this month's special series, Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science. As increasing evidence points to nutrition as a key factor in disease prevention and management, we're highlighting current topics, research, and best practices in the field. Brain tumors are almost always a death sentence. Is there a way to use diet to change that? I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss research into ketogenic diets for cancer therapy is Dr. Thomas Seafried, Associate Editor of the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and Professor of Biology at Boston College. Dr. Seafried, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Bruce. It's a real pleasure to be here. So what is a ketogenic diet? Ketogenic diets are simply diets that have a greater proportion of total calories coming from fat than from protein or carbohydrate. Generally, carbohydrates are greatly restricted in ketogenic diets. Proteins are maintained with adequate amounts, but carbohydrates are either absent or present in very low amounts relative to fat. So you have a, a four to one or a three to one fat to protein carbohydrate ratio. So it's any diet that would have a lot of fat and very little carb. And are there some specific diets that are actually out on the market that people would know or call by a name that would be a ketogenic diet? Well, I guess the closest one might be an Atkins diet where carbs are also restricted, but proteins are not restricted and fats and proteins. It comes close. It can have some of the same effects as a ketogenic diet, but it's it's not actually considered a ketogenic diet, although it's in that in that kind of direction. And how would you create a healthy ketogenic diet if you had to put a patient on this or if you were doing some research into ketogenic diets? Uh, this is an important question because many people think of fat and think of cardiovascular disease and other kinds of ailments. The key thing about using ketogenic diets for disease management is that they are consumed in very restricted amounts. So most patients, whether they have epilepsy or, or brain cancer, do not eat large amounts of the ketogenic diet. It's a restricted diet. The, the calories are coming in in restricted amounts and in large amount from, from fat. So small amount of fat consumption is not harmful to either animals or patients. So when we use the shortcut ketogenic diet, are we talking about a combination ketogenic diet and reduced calorie diet? That's exactly right. Now, there is some debate about this, but our research has clearly shown that ketogenic diets do not have therapeutic efficacy if consumed in the same caloric content as standard high-carb diets. The efficacy from ketogenic diets come largely from caloric restriction. The problem, of course, is caloric restriction is not looked upon favorably by a lot of people. The ketogenic diet is a way to get the power and therapeutic efficacy of caloric restriction without having to completely abstain from caloric intake. So if we were doing a glucogenic diet and calorie restriction, what would happen to the patient versus a ketogenic diet and calorie restriction? Most of the conditions are essentially the same. There are some slight differences which we think are important for therapeutic efficacy. The first major change is the reduction in circulating glucose levels, blood glucose levels. That is an indication that the body has to seek alternative fuels. The body will then transition to uh, fats, which are then broken down into ketones, and the ketones then replace the glucose as the energy. The difference between a, a restricted uh, high-glucose diet and a restricted ketogenic diet is that the circulating ketone bodies are actually higher in the ketogenic diet than in the glucose diet, and ketones have anti-inflammatory activity. So the, you get elevated ketones in both diets, but the ketone elevation is a little bit higher 
with the ketogenic diet, and we think that's important for the, for the therapeutic efficacy. How are these two diets metabolized differently in the various cells of the body? Well, our interest is in neurology, neurological neurodegenerative diseases, and brain cancer. The brain uses glucose uh, almost exclusively for its energy metabolism. As an evolutionarily conserved process, the brain will use ketone bodies when outside sources um, of glucose are restricted uh, during periods of fasting or food deprivation. The brain will then turn towards two ketone bodies. So ketone bodies and glucose are the only major fuels that the brain will use for energy. Brain does not burn fatty acids. When patients fast or during periods of starvation and fasting are actually two different kinds of phenomenon, but people sometimes group them together, but they're not the same. But nevertheless, the uh, liver, heart, muscles, and other organs will metabolize fatty acids for energy along with ketone bodies, whereas the brain, uh, what little glucose or what levels of glucose might be present will be spared for the brain. So there's a hierarchy within the body. The brain must always have a source of glucose but will burn ketones, where other organs can switch almost entirely over to fatty acids and ketones for energy. And of course, the proteins would be metabolized to make more glucose during gluconeogenesis. So when were you first involved in the scientific research to evaluate whether calorie-restricted ketogenic diets could be a potential therapy? Well, we had been studying epilepsy for many years uh, from my days at Yale University, and we've developed some very good epilepsy models, and we decided to put the ketogenic diet therapy on these models. And it became clear that we were able to get the same level of efficacy with a calorically restricted diet as we could with the epilepsy diet. At the same time, we were investigating calorie restriction as a therapy for brain cancer and found it to be very powerfully uh, anti-angiogenic. And as we've written, we have not yet found a therapy as more powerful anti-angiogenic than caloric restriction for brain cancer. So we kind of then took the ketogenic diet from our epilepsy studies, restricted it, and put it onto the, onto the mice that had the brain tumors. And we were able to get as well a, restri- a, a management uh, with the calorically restricted ketogenic diet as we were getting with caloric restriction alone. And we know that the ketogenic diet is an acceptable medical use in the, in the field of epilepsy research. So we thought that this would be a, a really nice way to manage uh, or approach brain cancer. And there had been some prior studies to suggest this already. So where else is this kind of research being done and what's the group data showing? Most of the research on the ketogenic diet is done in epilepsy centers. Johns Hopkins is probably one of the leading centers on the ketogenic diet for epilepsy research. There are a number of other in neurology departments scattered throughout the nation and now in other countries where ketogenic diet is being recognized as a legitimate and effective therapy for epilepsy. The idea that the ketogenic diet could be equally as effective, if not more effective, for brain cancer is now is just being recognized. And to my knowledge, there are some ideas of setting up centers to consider this, but there's no clinical trials, as far as I know, underway using the diet for brain cancer. Most individuals are doing this on their own. And when we talk about the ketogenic diet, Describe this for the mouse, and then also describe what it would look like for a human. Well, we initially formulated the mouse diet to match the human diet with respect to the ratio of of lipids to proteins and carbohydrates. We then uh, chose actually another, there's a commercially prepared ketogenic diet from certain nutritional companies, and we've used that as well as what we call the standard ketogenic diet formulated exactly as it is for humans. I think the only thing we didn't do in our mouse is put artificial 
sweeteners in some of the ketogenic diets. In the human clinics, they often will add artificial sweeteners to, to make the diet more palatable for children. We've done that, of course, just like children. The mice really like it when you put artificial sweeteners in the diet. But I would say they're virtually the same diets. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. And joining me to discuss research into ketogenic diets for cancer therapy is Dr. Thomas Seafried, Associate Editor of the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and Professor of Biology at Boston College. So what is the diet actually? Is it a liquid? Is it a solid? Is it a combination these commercially available ketogenic diets? Well, the commercially available ketogenic diet is a powder that you mix with water and it turns into kind of a, like a shake. It's flavored and it's, it's not too bad. We've, we've all tried it. You know, it's like a vanilla milkshake and, and they're beginning to put in other kinds of flavors and things. That's a commercially prepared. The, the group at Johns Hopkins has a very extensive list of things that you can have uh, as part of the ketogenic diet. There's heavy cream and butter and things like this, but it's taken in very restricted amounts to reduce any uh, adverse effects from the excess fat content. So it can come in the form of a shake. It can be solids. There's a, there's a lot of varieties and, and new kinds of combinations that make it much more palatable today than it had been in the past. And when we talk about calorie restriction, how much of a restriction is it? Well, this depends on the age of the individual that is being treated. Uh, children, of course, you have to be very careful, the age of the child, because the child is, is, is growing. And if you're too restrictive, you'll stunt growth and enter into a condition of malnutrition. And this is exactly the same with animal studies. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't, don't recognize this, that if you stunt growth, you can actually get effects that are difficult to distinguish. So we make sure our growth curves, either on the mice or when it's done in humans, are, are parallel to that of the, of the general population. So if individuals are older, adults, adults can tolerate a lot more caloric restriction than can children. So it, it varies. Any, it can be anywhere from 10% caloric restriction for very young individuals all the way up to 50 to 60% caloric restriction for older individuals. And some individuals use the full therapeutic fasting for several days, which is water only or tea only without any food intake to lower blood glucose and elevate ketones. So there's a variety of ways in which the caloric restriction can be applied. So let's focus now on the scientific evidence that caloric intake and ketogenic diet have an impact in managing malignant brain cancers in humans. Take us through some of the science. What do you do with those mice or in the lab to help start proving this, and where have you taken it? Well, I mean, the idea of, you know, how do you use a keto, why would a ketogenic diet be effective for targeting brain cancer? The idea is based firmly in scientific evidence based from the work of Otto Warburg showing that the mitochondria are damaged in tumors. In all cancer, not just brain cancer, glycolysis is the primary source of generating fuel for the cells. All cells require a basal level of ATP energy for them to be alive. And most of the energy is used to run these pumps, these ionic pumps on the membrane. They take up anywhere from 50 to 70% of the energy in the cell. So this energy must come from either respiration or it must come from glycolysis. The tumor cells, all cancer cells, have damaged mitochondria and are dependent on glycolysis for their existence. When you calorie restrict, you lower blood sugar, you elevate ketones. The ket in order to get energy from ketones, you need functional mitochondria. The tumor cells do not have functional mitochondria. Normal cells do, so the ketones actually protect the normal cells while glucose is being reduced. The tumor cells do not have this level of protection. Consequently, they're isolated from the normal cells, and they either up and up outright die, 
or they become a very dormant kind of cell. When you look at the cells in the lab, can you actually see these mitochondria being defective and the cells actually dying when you restrict the amount of glucose? Let me first say you can see the cells dying because you have markers for apoptosis, cell death, and necrotic cell death. So you can see cells dying. The blood vessels in the tumor sh uh, shrink up very substantially, and, and it's well known in cancer research that targeting the vasculature can significantly reduce the growth. So those kinds of biomarkers are clearly seen. The mitochondrial defects can only be seen when you use electron microscopy or when you do uh, analysis of mitochondrial proteins or lipids. And we've been able to provide very strong evidence in support of the Vorberg hypothesis. Just recently, we've published a paper in the Journal of Lipid Research which shows that the mitochondrial membrane lipids are defective in all of the tumors that we've looked at, and this supports findings in other non-brain cancers. So we, we think that, the, that Warburg was absolutely correct. Mitochondrial respiration is defective in cancer, and this would prevent them from utilizing ketones for energy and making them dependent on glucose. So the diet is very simple. It just simply lowers the availability of the prime fuel for the cancer cells, while giving the normal cells what they've evolved to use during periods of fasting, and that is ketones. So it's a nice way to isolate the tumor cells from the normal cells without damaging surrounding tissue. So we all know that we can cure cancer in mice a lot of the time, but it doesn't always translate to humans. Do we think this is going to translate from the mouse model to the human model? Well, the efficacy is based on these common principles that are found, defects found in the mouse cancer and the, and the human cancer. And the term cure is a very risky term. I mean, you know, cure cancer can come back even if it were dormant for many, many years, it can return. So a lifetime cure is, is very difficult to, to say. I, I think what, what the diet does is it provides a much longer period of remission in a, high, in a higher state of quality of health. And I think that's what, we're, what, we, we, what we can firmly state at this point. I'm not willing to say that the diet therapy is a cure for cancer, although I have to admit I've seen some individuals who've used it and have been cancer-free, brain cancer-free for at least up to four years. So anything beyond that, I'm not sure. Are there any clinical trials planned? There are, but the, the, the interesting thing is, is that because the diet is so different in the way it's, uh, it's used, it's been very difficult to get coordination from the different medical departments. You have neurology, neurosurgery, neuro-oncology, and it's been hard to determine how something like this, what department would be responsible, how would the patients be handled. So there's, I think there's logistical issues and medical practice issues that, that are, are impeding the adaptability. Although this, I have to admit this was what happened with the ketogenic diet for epilepsy research, but over many years of persistence by those who worked in the field, it is now becoming a standard practice of care for patients with epilepsy, and we think it should be for people with brain tumors as well. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas Seafried, for joining us to discuss research into ketogenic diets for cancer therapy. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science. For downloadable podcasts of programs in this series, go to ReachMD.com and choose the series Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science.